Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Let's try the last part of that chant again. If you've ever had Peter's soup, it makes you chant spontaneously. (laughs) You finish the soup, and then the mouth automatically goes, What do you do in your palate after you've had a really good meal? Show me. Say, ah. And then what do you do? There's usually two sounds we make. One is, ah. And the other is, mm. <laughs> let's try that together. <sighs> and the other one is, mm. what do you say when you finally understand something? <laughs> and what other sound do you make? What a sound you make if you're really dumb. And you just really (laughs) like you just don't get a thing we're talking about. What other sound do you make? Like if you don't know something. In the yoga physician, it says, it's only fools who understand yoga. Because they have no idea. And so they're always arriving in the present moment. Because they don't have any preconceptions about how it's supposed to be. We were talking last night about how yoga is the interruption of our expectation of how things are supposed to be. Did this ring true for anybody? Like, if you think about a time in your life when you were most present, let's say when you were the most happy. Just contemplate that for a minute. 
the time in your life you were most happy, it's probably one of your strongest memories. And probably in that moment of experience, there was no storytelling. There was no me talking to myself about what was happening. Sometimes it's not just happy moments, but uh, traumatic moments. A car accident, getting shot, raped, punched, hit by a car. Um, usually our strongest memories are when we were completely present and there was nothing else happening that you're so fully in the experience that there is no you. There is just experience unfolding. And this is what we call non-dualism or yoga. That there's a complete falling away of the distinction between me as a subject and the object of my experience. You've all had this experience of yoga. Maybe it was making love, or maybe it was listening to a piece of music, or maybe making music, or making art, where for a moment you disappear, and you just become the experience, and there's no me standing outside of it. And usually there's contentment. It's interesting how usually the best moments of our life are when there is no me being constructed. There's just an experience happening. You see a sunset and you go, and then the mind comes in and goes, sunset, which is the object, right? And you can only have an object if you have a subject. So as soon as you go sunset, there's a me. But before that experience, there was no Jacob there. There was just what was happening. And then the mind comes in and says, sunset. And then suddenly there's Jacob. Does this make sense? Physiologically, when the palate, the root of the palate releases, the mind settles down and the heart opens. This is the physiology of non-dualism. That we see the sunset and the root of the palate goes, huh? And then you're satisfied, so you go, hmm, hmm. Let's try that again. Mm. Does anybody here drink wine? No. No. <laughs> if you ever go to a restaurant and you save up your whole salary so that you can buy one really nice bottle of wine, and then the waiter comes over and he pops the cork, and passes it over to you, and what do you do with the cork? You smell it. And if you're a connoisseur of wine, you actually close your eyes.
One time I saw, went to see Thich Nhat Hanh giving a talk. And he came with an orange. And he sat. There were thousands of people there. Does anybody know who Thich Nhat Hanh is? He's a Vietnamese Zen teacher and social activist. And he sat down with the orange and he just smelt it. And it was like every person in the whole room was smelling that orange. And then he proceeded to peel it. And then he had a bite. And that took about half an hour. He didn't say a word. And people were on the edge of their seat. (laughs) No Hollywood film was as thrilling. Um, When you smell a cork, what happens in the roof of the mouth? You're completely present. What happens? What happens to the roof of your mouth? Try it in your mouth. You smell? Tell me what happens in your mouth. Softens. Softens. The roof lifts. What does your tongue do? What's that? Yeah. And um, what happens to your eyes? You know that drishti we've been working on? Yeah. Has anybody here ever seen the Mona Lisa? What's happening in her eyes? Does she look like she's hungry? Or does she look like she's content? What's happening in her mouth? She's basically, she's practicing yoga. (laughs) If you look at the face of the Mona Lisa, she's doing exactly the same thing that the Buddha is doing. And she also has the same face of every single Indian deity, except for Ganesh, because you can't see his face. Completely, something in the way. Mm. Yeah. In other words, when something interrupts our normal habits of perception, which is always creating dualism, binary categories, when something interrupts, and a good meal can do this, a glass of wine, hopefully yoga, but when you have an aesthetic experience, like you see a great piece of art. Good art is designed to interrupt your habits of perception so that you go, huh? Yeah. And then the root of the palate releases. And this is key for practicing asana. Once when I was practicing with Patabi Joyce, he said, meditating on tongue. And my first response was, I don't understand the thing he's talking about. <laughs> he must be making a mistake. Meditating on tongue. Maybe he means, means my fingernail. Meditating on tongue. And then after a couple of years, I finally decided to try it. Because the tongue is actually the nervous system as it manifests in present experience and is basically an embassy for your pelvic floor.
And so when the mind is shifting about doing all kinds of creative things it normally does, being lost in imagination and distraction, then the tongue is also busy. But when we release the tongue by being a beginner, a beginner always has this tongue, right? It's like impossible for people who teach yoga to practice yoga anymore because they have so many preconceptions about their practice. The great Zen teacher Shinru Suzuki says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities and in the expert's mind, there are few. In the beginner's mind, we don't know what to expect. But when we become an expert at yoga, then we miss the whole point because the tongue is all wrapped up in itself and ideas. So the tongue is basically an illustration of what's happening in the mind. So when we practice ujjayi pranayama, we're meditating simultaneously on sound and on what's happening in the tongue and in the palate, so that the ujjayi pranayama becomes a form of meditation practice. So we're practicing pranayama. What's prana? Energy. Energy? Vital energy. What else is prana? Okay. Good. Beginners. <laughs> what's yama? Restraint. So what's ayama? Non-restraint. Non-restraint. So what does it mean to practice prana ayama? What does that mean? Prana, not restraining the prana. Except that we're restraining the breath. Please explain it to me. I'm confused. If I'm practicing pranayama, I'm not restraining, I'm unrestraining the prana. So is it possible that prana and the breath are not actually the same thing? Is that possible? So prana is basically the energy of life. And life energy manifests most easily for humans as the breath. And so we take the breath and we manipulate it so that we can start to undo the habits of prana, the habits of intelligence. Because prana gets pulled up in the body and the mind in all kinds of ways. So we then take the breath and we use it particular ways to unrestrain the prana. Because the breath and the prana are not the same thing, which we're going to explore in a little bit. So ujjayi pranayama means we're stretching the breath in such a way that the mind can then focus on what's happening in present experience. But most of the time ujjayi pranayama is approached in too gross a way. And because it's not subtle, it just becomes a technique that we overdo that actually (coughs) creates tension in the body. 
You can hear sometimes people huffing and puffing through their yoga practice. When you hear someone... Then you ever practice like that? Especially with back bends. Especially in back bends. Yeah. Kapotasana. Kapotasana. Yeah. Um, what is that doing to your nervous system when you practice like that? Yeah, it's kind of wires. You know. Yeah. Or it keeps you going at your normal. Hey, <laughs> some people just operate like that all the time. <laughs> I was like that once. I remember when I was 18 years old, I went to a party and they had cocaine. And I remember trying cocaine. And my first reaction was, wow, this is how I am all the time. <laughs> Why would anybody want to take this? <laughs> So, pranayama, ujjayi pranayama. So let's try this together, okay? We're going to put all this together now and see how it works. So, when we practice ujjayi pranayama, we want to take the vocal diaphragm and we want to tone it because this is called a bandha. A bandha is the same thing as a chakra. It's basically, in the body, we have these mandalas, these circles, And so wherever there's a diaphragm in the body, there is a bandha. And when that diaphragm is toned, it's considered a bandha. So we tone the vocal diaphragm by engaging the glottis, which is basically what you need to use in order to whisper. So let's try something. So I want you to try whispering your name out loud five times right now. Hmm. Sounds like a horror film. (laughs) Okay, let's try that again. Okay, imagine that you're reading your favorite poem to your lover. And now say your name again, five times, as if it were poetry. Okay. So, in other words, you can whisper like this. You can whisper like this. And you'll notice that you don't have to work very hard in the throat to whisper. It's very subtle, it's very quiet. So, if I whisper with tenderness, then I can then take that and apply it to the breath. Because when the vocal cords are engaged and you breathe through the nose, it turns your sinuses into an amplifier. 
so that then you can hear the sound of the breath in the inner ear, and then you have an object for meditation. So I'll give you an example. This is what we're going to do. We're going to inhale through the nose. And then exhale through the mouth. So we're tuning in to the steadiness, the quality of the sound of the breath. Because I can inhale and I can exhale. This is not yoga. Okay? Let's try it together. We'll inhale through the nose. And exhale through the mouth. Keep the eyes soft. Again, inhaling through the nose. And exhale through the mouth. Now just through the nose. Good. Do you see how softly you can breathe? One more piece has to happen for it to be ujjayi pranayama, is that we need to release the root of the palate. Do you know where the root of the palate is? The root of the palate is where your tongue, you can't touch it with your finger, turns into your throat. Your tongue turns into your throat. And there's only one way to release the root of the palate. Do you know how? Smiling. Yeah. Not a fake, extroverted smile. Do you know people who smile like that? Yeah. They're usually hiding serious depression. Um, but just the same kind of smile that the Mona Lisa contains. So... If you don't smile when you're practicing ujjayi pranayama, the throat starts to get tense and then you'll have to drink a lot of water because the throat gets all dry. So let's try the same thing. We're going to inhale and exhale, but keep a soft smile because you can feel this. When you smile, let's try it. Kind smile you can feel how the back of your throat gets as wide as your lips. Can you feel that? It's like it takes the same shape as the corners of your lips. Can everybody feel this? 
Okay, let's try. Inhale and exhale on your own. Ujjayi pranayama with a soft smile. The tongue is quiet. Listening to the sound of the breath. And one of the things you will notice is that as soon as the mind gets distracted, the first thing that goes is the smile. As soon as you get distracted, the first thing that goes is the smile. Good. Let the eyes open. Is this making sense? Mm-hmm. Any questions so far? <coughs> yes. I don't have to activate the bandhas in order to make What do you mean activate the bandhas? Well, try to How do you tighten mulabandha? What do you do? I'll take the outer anus. Yeah. I'll try to get it to leave with my anus. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Don't bother with that. Yeah. But I still do pranayama breathing. Pranayama breathing. Okay, when you engage the vocal diaphragm mm-hmm. to make that sound, that's Jalandhara Bandha. Okay. Bandhas happen. A little rule, and I'm sorry if this is going to confuse your theories, is that you don't actually do bandhas. Did you hear that? You don't do bandhas. They just happen naturally. Trust me. For ten years I tried doing bandhas. If you squeeze your anus you will become constipated. <laughs> Women who practice Ashtanga Yoga and practice Mulabandha by squeezing their anus and genitals actually stop menstruating. It's very common. And if you go around squeezing your anus, your friends won't want to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> and you'll become tight. <laughs> Trust me, it happened to me. <laughs> For ten years, I just because that's how I learned Mulabandha is squeezing your anus, and so that's what I did. I squeezed my anus all day long every day, <laughs> and uh, I became constipated, and I had no friends, <laughs> which seemed really good for my yoga practice. <laughs> Because suddenly I had so much time because I wasn't hanging out with friends and I was never in the bathroom. So don't bother with that. Okay? But so far the only bandha we've covered is Jalandhara bandha. Jalandhara means the web of support and in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. It's called the cup of nectar. 
because the nectar, amrit, which is synonymous with the word karuna, is the nectar of compassion. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the great text on Hatha Yoga, is written in code language. And it's written with metaphors so that you read it and you think, what is this all about? I, ha- I don't get it. Um, and they do that on purpose so that you actually have to study for the teacher and you can't just be a book yogini. Um, the cup of nectar refers to the nectar of compassion because it said when you practice Jalandhara Bandha, you set up the conditions in the body for compassion. And we've just covered that, right? I mean, by definition, compassion is when your viewpoint is interrupted. If you let go of your expectations on somebody else, you've set up the conditions for compassion. If you have a lot of ideas about how someone is supposed to be, there's no room for compassion. So, when you take the root of the palate and you go, hmm, you, you, you've set up the physiology of compassion. Hmm. If you think of any time where you've given up your viewpoint and you've just shown up with someone, hmm, you're just there. And this is the nectar of compassion, <coughs> which is sometimes called amrita. Mrutu is uh, death. So amrit means no death. Which is where in English we get the word mortal, which is then where we get the word meal. Yeah. When you eat a meal, there's been a little death. Yeah. Because mortal means like it means to grind down. To grind something down. Like mortar in cement. Something that's been ground down. So amrit is to not grind anything down. Especially other people. Because the goal of yoga is compassion. Don't tell anybody. It's not the popular agenda. But because when you actually arrive in present experience without your agenda, there's automatically compassion. And so we're working on this physiologically and psychologically simultaneously. Are there any questions here? I hope we're becoming a little bit confused. No? Now's your chance to ask you because we're covering a lot of material, even though it's subtle. So when I'm practicing asana, no matter what pose I'm in, even kapotasana, um, the tongue is released, hmm. and I'm enjoying every minute of it, or someone's enjoying every minute of it. Hmm. So meditating on palate. Meditating on tongue. But if you encounter new poses that are difficult, there will be a time where you are practicing compassion, but you're not actually being able to. You never let it go. You never let it go, no. But if you can't breathe, you shouldn't be there. 
but the, it's like a relationship. <laughs> if you're in a relationship and like you, you're being strangled, you should get out of there as fast as possible. <clears throat> and the asana too. If the goal of asana is to achieve something unaccompanied by the breath, then that's not asana. I don't know what that is. It's ambition. <coughs> Sorry. It's okay. Yeah. yeah but the question, I think maybe you can say a lot about this because the question is really good. I mean, the normal conception would be that to get something you have to, you know, put your arms and you have to strain, you have to do, 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 and then you get to this place and then you can sort of relax and then the next time you do it it's not so difficult. Which is how you, s- you would see many asanas. Like the first time you do it, ah, it's really tough, but then you get better and then you can sort of relax. So if I never strain, I'm never going to reach my toes or I'm never going to get the job right or I'm never going to... Mm-hmm. So if I don't strain, about those tools. What about that <laughs> you know, do you, do you understand? I understand the question, mm-hmm. but I'm suggesting that there is a different approach. Mm-hmm. The Indian approach is that if you can't get your knees to the floor, we'll just stand on them. <laughs> if, you know, like let's say you're in Bada Konasana. Has anybody ever had this sense? And like you're this stiff. And the teacher will come over and just stand on your knees until they go to the floor. But we also know that if you actually took your hands underneath the knees and you lifted them up, so you actually took the resistance, and instead of meeting the resistance with resistance, you actually met the resistance with compassion, and you held them up like this, then the groins actually soften and then you go back into the pose with much more flexibility. So it seems like, and I think this is especially true for postures like backbending, that there are ways in a backbend where you can hold your breath and walk your hands to your ankles and then finally breathe and fall down. And you could say that's working towards the goal of holding your ankles, and I'm sure some of you have practiced in that way before. Or you can get in the pose and breathe the pose until it softens. And then over time, you'll get much, much deeper into the pose. Not straining, not effort, but nonviolence. I'm not up for... uh, the straining in yoga poses because I've just seen way too many people get hurt because of their habitual ego desires. And the other thing about your desire is that the thing that desire loves the most is desire. In Tibetan Buddhism, this is called the hungry ghosts. That in you, you have ghosts that are starving your desires. And the thing about those ghosts is that they're never ever satisfied. So if you go into a yoga posture straining to get something, you're setting up the mental conditions to take that same pattern of perception into other things that you're doing. But when you keep the ego in check by finding another version, then you change your approach. 
Like, for example, two summers ago, you may remember on the news that an American soldier was kidnapped in Iraq. And the kidnappers uh, slit his throat on television and it was broadcast all over the world. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And then two days later, the American Air Force found where the kidnappers were living and they bombed their house and they assassinated them. And then that night on the news, they interviewed the father of the person who was the hostage who was assassinated. And they said, we just have news that the murderers have been assassinated. Do you have any comment? And he started crying on the television and he said, I'm sorry that two more people have had to die. Could you imagine your heart this open? Mm -hmm. That somebody assassinates your child and that you are upset that the people who assassinated him now also have to die. It doesn't make any sense. If you meet resistance with resistance, you just get war. You have to meet resistance with something else, even in your own body. So nonviolence starts in your sacrum and in your knee joint and goes all the way out to the traffic, to other people, to your family, and to your enemies. It's too easy to turn something into an object and want to get rid of it. And when you huff and puff in yoga postures and you strain, then you're turning the yoga posture into an object that you have to get. And at a psychological and physiological level, there's harm being done. It's not to say that you're not reaching for areas that you have never explored, but you're doing so with the breath. If the breath is not there, then back out of it. It's kind of like going into a bad neighborhood. Do you have any of these in Copenhagen? Okay, maybe not. There are some cities where, like, places in Los Angeles or Detroit where you just shouldn't go there unaccompanied. And so the breath is like your best accompaniment. You shouldn't go into any yoga postures or new neighborhood of your body unaccompanied. You should go accompanied by the breath. So for those of you that teach yoga, teaching Ujjayi Pranayama as something very subtle and elegant to beginner students is a great way to start because then as they move through their practice, they might move more slowly. If they're beginners, they don't have a vision of what it looks like anyways, right? And then what they do is over time, they will end up with practices that are much more sophisticated, subtle and graceful because they've started off slow and they know what to look for to keep things steady and subtle. And the same is true with pranayama practice. You can go into pranayama practice and do all kinds of crazy 
things. Patabi Joy says that's like plugging your body into a 1,000 volt socket. And you see people do pranayama this way and they finish and they're like this. <laughs> or you see people walk out of asana class and they're shaking. And they confuse the endorphins for the yoga. As opposed to really penetrating the meditative insight that comes when you're genuinely present with experience. And then your yoga practice helps you out in your life. Yeah. I, I, I just, um, I think I need to ask my question one more time okay. in a different way. Because yeah. it's like when I think about asana, I think my intention is to stay with the breath the whole time. Yeah. And my intention is to soften everything I do with the breath. And it's like, Sometimes in real life, my intention is to stay compassionate and kind, and then stuff happens, and I'm not. And really? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And it's like that nasana practice that my intention yeah. and my focus is on softening the breath. But there are asanas that challenge that breath. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm there with the breath, yeah. there is tension. Mm-hmm. And it's subtle. Yeah. But, I mean, my focus is listening, and I can hear, ah, there's something here. And that's yeah. my question is, like, I'm not soft the whole time. So I think what you're saying is that you're not perfect. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was my point, is that... <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know anybody who's perfect? Great, good. Yeah. Do you know anybody who's perfect? Mm. Does anybody know anybody who's perfect? Mm. I believe we all are. Oh, yeah. you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody except me. <laughs> that's the basic. Well, yeah. that's a basic difference, isn't it, between this philosophy and the tantric tradition? How? What is what? The question whether are things perfect or aren't they perfect? Yeah. Here in. I don't know too much about the theoretical yeah. uh, history and all that, but yeah. here I get the, the notion that there is something to fix. Mm. There is struggle we want to get mm-hmm. rid of, whereas um, I think that's a, a part of the conditions of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and if you if you take that on, if you mm-hmm. accept that, then that's okay. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. You might, and then with the, your choices, your attitude. Mm-hmm. You might enhance either the dukkha or the joy. Right. So, I don't know. I'm not sure I understand the distinction that you're making. No. I'm probably not very good at explaining it, so I, I just feel that. I mean, what we're exploring is Tantra. It is. But, uh, but now you say that, well, do you know anyone who's perfect? Where I, I, would, I would think that. Within the tantric tradition, Mm -hmm. everyone are, even with the flaws that we Mm -hmm. see. Is the French government perfect? Uh, Well, I guess you can't. You can't. Is the United States government perfect? Is the universe perfect, isn't it? Exactly. So there's a you know so both the yoga and the tantric (laughs) approach would say that considering things in terms of perfect and imperfect is still being caught in dualistic perception that you're putting things into opposing categories. And both yoga and tantra is the resolution of opposition. It's not saying things are perfect or imperfect. 
It's meeting things as they are, free from the concepts of perfect and imperfect, so that you don't create enemies, even in your own mind. And the perfectionist, who's trying to make things perfect, misses the point of yoga, which is that you can't make anything perfect. What's interesting about the psychology of perfectionism is that the perfectionist never actually really wants anything to be perfect. Even though their actions make it seem like they want things to be perfect. For example, you clean your sink until it's perfectly clean, but then your sponge is dirty. (laughs) So then you have to clean the sponge and then you get the sink dirty. Then you put the sponge under the sink in the cupboard and now it's dirty. So you have to turn the water back on and then you have to clean the sponge and then clean under but then the sink gets dirty. (laughs) This is called karma, which means every action has residue and you can't actually get the final residue because everything you do has residue. Sorry, but every action you take has an effect. And so you better think and contemplate about the kind of actions that you're going to take because they're going to have effects internally and externally. So when you practice asana, you're planting patterns in the mind-body process called samskaras. And you want to make sure that you're clear about the kind of samskaras you want to plant. So if you go and practice that handstand just to show off, then those are the kind of samskaras you're planting. And samskaras are not planted by the action, but actually by the intention in the action. Karma basically means intention. Is this making sense? So how you go about approaching your asana practice is all about the intention. And our intentions are formed by belief systems. And belief systems are formed by deep patterns in the mind-body process, which are formed by intentions. Get it? So you just jump in anywhere, and you arrive here, because there isn't anywhere else. Where else are you going to arrive? I mean, nobody, whether you're a scientist or a meditator, can prove that time exists. In fact, they've proved quite the opposite. There is no past. It's over. You can't go back and change something that's happened to you in the past. It's past. That's why it's called the past. Because it's over. Go try and change the past. Have you ever tried this before? It's called psychoanalysis. Yeah. Um, And you can't change the future, but you can attend to what's happening in the present. And in fact, the future is actually the past. Because anything you think about the future is conditioned from the past. So the future is completely historical. So that means the only thing that actually exists is right now. But that doesn't even exist either. Because as soon as the mind tries to figure out what the present moment is, you've missed it. There's no such thing as the present moment. Everyone loves to talk about the present moment. If you put it on the title of your book, you will sell millions of copies. And 
you can go around having workshops and people will come. But nobody knows what it is because it doesn't actually exist. And neither does time. And the meditator starts to understand that real dukkha is the gap between the mind and time. It's being out of time. Mulabandha, it says Mulabandha gobbles up time. <laughs> because when you exhale down into the pelvic floor and the mind is completely present, there's no such thing as time. There's just what's actually happening. It's outside of time. Any questions? <laughs> What is he going on about? <laughs> is there anything you've covered that you're not clear about? Please ask questions. One of the lovely things about nice size workshop like this is we can ask especially the, the stupidest question. It's usually the best, you know, the one that you're too shy to ask. Yes. I'm a little bit confused with what you say, like the goal of yoga is compassion. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at this, the sutras, the first chapter, then they talk so much about the prithis that you sort of get in control of them. Yeah. Because once you've done that, you've sort of structured that you're the one who determines what you think, and not your mind is determined, or whatever outside of it. I don't know if you've got Can you control your prithis? Um, no, it's just like that they don't disturb your way of thinking, like you call them perception. Mm. Like I walk down the street and I start thinking what to cook tonight and this morning I was not polite to somebody or something. So it's like distracting you from being actually walking on the street. Right. So I always thought that the aim of yoga or the goal of yoga is actually to get, uh, to be able, like I'm the one who thinks and therefore I'm able to be in the present because I don't get distracted with whatever comes from outside. Do you think that you think your thoughts? I mean, I are you responsible for making all those thoughts happen? To some extent, I don't hope I am. Because there are lots of bad thoughts that I think, and I think it would be a little bit funny that I have to walk around and think so many bad things, either about myself, about people around me, about whatever I'm, I'm actually doing at the moment. I would say that when you can learn how to get still and just let thought come and go, not controlling the vrittis, but just letting the vrittis do their thing, because you can't control the clouds, you can't control sound, you can't control what you smell and what you taste, you can't control what you think. And when you can just let thought come and go without contracting around it, then you start to find some stillness, which is called nirodha. And in that stillness, the feeling of it <coughs> is connection with all things. You see, the more that you're caught up in your ideas about how things are, the less you're connected to reality. So by definition, yoga is compassion. 
It's the goal of yoga. It's synonymous with yoga. Yoga means intimacy. Yoga is the inherent interconnection of everything, which is genuine compassion. Not that fake kind of empathy. Like, do you know anybody who tries to be empathic? Or people who try to be compassionate? It's hard to hang out with them because they're not being themselves. But if you know anybody who is genuinely compassionate, they're probably not so caught up in their ideas about themselves and they probably don't have a lot of expectations on how you're supposed to be. In other words, non-attachment means engagement. Because when you're not attached to your viewpoint then you can be more engaged with others. So when you're not caught up in the chitta-vritti pattern, then you're present. We're present with each other because I don't need you to be something. And then you can be yourself. And that's compassion. And that's yoga. Yeah, I think we're talking about the same thing. I just think we put some different words in it. Maybe. Yeah. Patanjali is very careful about how he chooses his words because it's very easy to think that the goal of yoga is to get somewhere which is I kind of think that that's what was in your question too a little bit the goal of yoga there's no goal because yoga is always happening that's why I said last night and some of you rolled your eyes that you can't practice yoga because you can't practice intimacy it's just, it's there already. You see? So it's almost like, that's why I like this term awakening. Because you're awakening from the mental habits that keep you disconnected and not engaged. And that's the practice of yoga. Any other questions? You yes. mentioned Kierkegaard yesterday. Oh, did I? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and now you just responded in a way that almost made it sound a little bit like when you said, "Who think, who is thinking your thoughts?" Mm-hmm. And I think that in a way, it sounds a little bit like the thoughts just. Happen, yes, they do. And you have no responsibility in choosing your, your thoughts in uh-huh. the way that you responded. Uh-huh. And when you mentioned Kierkegaard yesterday, I was thinking, well, I believe we have a choice of attitude. Yeah. And to me, that's also a choice of thought. Of course, I can't control it completely, yeah. but I can choose whether I look at something positively or negatively. Yes, you can. Right? So I yes. choose my attitude, and that's my thought too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So how does that go with, Whose with thought the is it? answer? Whose thought is that thought? I think it's my thought. What's that? It's my attitude. Who's me? Okay. Well, I don't know who me is. You but you know you have a thought. Yeah. Me is also a thought. Mm-hmm. So what's thinking that thought? 
Who's thinking that thought? But can you set that discussion aside and then just keep to the thought? That's the heart of the discussion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then everything becomes such an abstraction. So how to use it in daily life? How to use it in now? I mean, if everything is so uh, dependent on what is what is me and do I exist? Am I my ego? Am I my feelings? Am I my thoughts? Am I my body? You know? Then it's like everything becomes this big question and it leaves not a lot of possible well maybe it leaves a lot of possibility because everything is so open. It leaves a lot of possibility. Yeah, maybe it does. Yeah. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's very confusing, I think. What's confusing? No, but several times, this is what you're talking about. Several times you have said, when people are asking questions, you also tell me, but who are you? Uh, that makes me completely confused. Good. This workshop is not helpful if everything we're talking about corresponds to your worldview. What's interesting is when something gets confusing, and maybe we've triggered something. The difference between Kierkegaard and yoga is that for Kierkegaard, what we repress the most is the fear of death. But in yoga, what we repress the most is not the fear of death. It's the realization that we don't actually exist in the first place. That the self is nothing but a mental construction It's a story that you're telling yourself about yourself that you believe. And that is hard to swallow. Is that all kinds of yoga? All traditions? In the yoga that we're exploring together, Yoga Sutra Yoga, um, which would also be in line with early Pali Buddhism when it's done well, or Zen when it's done well, We're going after the notion that things actually exist. But it doesn't mean that things don't exist. I think what you're saying is you're flipping to exactly the opposite extreme. And you're saying if everything is impermanent, then, and if I am just a mental construction, then I don't exist. But that is also being stuck in the viewpoint of something existing, which is that it doesn't exist. Do you see what I'm saying? Your mind is just going into the opposite. So you're switching one theological perspective for another that are opposites. This is a confusion that a lot of Buddhists get into also. Because the Buddha, for example, people say the Buddha taught that there is no self. But the Buddha did not teach there is no self. His teaching is called not-self. And there is a major distinction there. Because you exist. I can't say you don't exist. If I say that you didn't exist, then, you know, you could just come over and pick my nose. (laughs) And I don't want you to pick my nose. It's my nose. When I go to the bathroom, I don't want you to come in with me. You know? 
because we're separate, we're different, and I want that difference. So at some level, you exist. Are we clear about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I say, Jacob, you don't exist, it wouldn't make any sense. And he's got his name here, <laughs> you know. Um, at the same time, the fact, the distinction that we make between Michael and Jacob is just a mental fabrication. The distinction is just conceptual. In other words, when you die, do you know that you're going to die? Mm -hmm. Apparently, I've heard that nobody gets out of this alive. Do you know anyone who's gotten out of this alive? No. When you die, at the moment of death and leading up to the moments of death, you have to let go of whatever it is that you're clinging to. Has anybody here ever been present with somebody when they're dying who doesn't want to die? Has anybody here ever been around a family member or someone who's dying but is kind of fighting it? Yeah. A lot of suffering. It's good to witness, I think, because death is complete giving up. It's generosity, actually. Because what we fear the most about death is that not that your toe is going to get eaten by a worm or that your hair is going to go up in smoke. It's that I am going to die. Michael is going to die. Not that the knee is going to disintegrate. It's that this this story about me I've been working on is going to come to an end. And the fear around death, which is called abhinivesha, let's say this together, abhinivesha, the fear of death is the fear that the story of me is coming to an end. And it's one of the reasons why we want to have stories about what's going to happen after we die. Because then I can keep a story going. But from this side, we don't know what happens when we die. Because it's in the future. And there's nothing more invisible than the next moment. Nothing. So if the thing that you have to let go of at the end of your life is everything that you've been invested in, the writing of this identity, chapter after chapter, that you've created as me, if that's what you have to let go of when you die, yoga suggests, well, then why not let go of it now? Because if the best moments in your life are when you're not writing that story, because you're actually present, then drop the story now. Stop constructing all the time this story about me or the story about others. Because it keeps you out of present experience and wrapped up in yourself. Which takes Freud's idea of narcissism much, much further. So for Freud, what we repress the most is sexual energy. 
For Jung, what we repress the most is spiritual spirituality. For Adler, what we repress the most is power. For Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, what we repress the most is the fear of death. And for yoga, what we repress the most is the fact that we don't actually, there was no self that existed in the first place. And the moment of death reminds us of that. Yes. Um, yeah. But then I think, I mean, you could say the reason that I'm here at this yoga seminar is because it sort of fits in my story of me, that I'm this person and I do this and and I can give you many good reasons why I'm in the seminar because, you know, I want to be... Well, that's the point. I want to be something that I'm not. So the, the, the moment I realize, uh, you know, if I was really getting what you were saying now, I mean, maybe I'd, maybe I'd stay here, but maybe I'd just keep my, take my stuff and leave because then I would let go of my story. And, I mean, the, and then you're free. And then I'm free, yeah. But, and then the question is... Mm-hmm. I mean, then I would leave and well, that the the freedom that comes from being nobody. It, what we're saying is, when you stop becoming somebody, then you're free to be nobody. Mm-hmm. And when you're free to be nobody, you can be yourself, because you're not having to be a somebody, because you're a nobody who doesn't need to be anybody. <laughs> and then you're free. But if we're and that's called samadhi. But samadhi is not the goal of yoga. Mm-hmm. And Patanjali says over and over again that this experience of samadhi is not the goal of yoga. Please explain samadhi. Samadhi is the eighth limb, which means integration. Um, So that's enlightenment or whatever. Yeah? Or no? It's it's integration. It means that you come to realize that everything is interconnected and it shakes to the core this notion that you exist as separate. Which is hopefully what you'll also experience when you die. And then the eighth limb, see the eight limbs are a circle. They're not a list. And then samadhi wraps into the first yama again. Because if everything is connected, then what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to steal, and I'm going to be honest, but you can't and I'm going to practice nonviolence. But you can't, I mean, you can only steal it. If there's me and you, I can take your thing. But I can't give myself the pen, right? Because <laughs> I, mean, I can give you the pen, but I can't give me the pen. But I still exist. And so do you. Are you sure? But then you just say that <laughs> we were interconnected. Yeah. We're interconnected means that we still exist. But can I steal from you? I mean, if you're significantly different from me, then I can steal from you. If you're well, that's what we're saying about the yamas. That mm-hmm. one version of the yamas is when you practice the yamas, it's starting to teach you about interdependency mm-hmm. and about how we're connected. But from the other way around, yeah. once you start to wake up to samadhi, the yamas are just expressions of interconnectedness. Yeah, they're like Why would I... Like they're not even rules anymore. No, they're it's like just the laws of nature. Yeah, that's the way exactly. Is this making sense? So if I'm some Indian guru in my little town in northern India 
and I have an experience of samadhi, and then I come to Copenhagen, we don't treat women the same way. So even if I have samadhi, it's impermanent because I have to act that samadhi out in a different culture now with different ethics. Do you see? Mm -hmm. So you don't stop. This is really important because we have this idea that we're going to get enlightened and and you won't get gas anymore and your (laughs) menstrual cramps will all stop and everything will be perfect. Like some utopia that Voltaire wrote about or something. The garden. But actually... Enlightenment is this moment without resistance. Can I give you one more example and then we'll have a little break? There's a wonderful Japanese poet named Basho, and he wrote this beautiful poem that goes like this. Even though the moon is full, something is missing. Suma in summer. Suma is the name of the beach. Let's go through that again, okay? Even though the moon is full, something is missing. Summa in summer. So he looks up to the moon and he wakes up, right? Have you ever looked into the moon and it just floors you? Mm-hmm. And then he says, but something is missing. And we could say that Basho is referring to the enlightenment of the Buddha. The Buddha is sitting under the Bodhi tree. Well, it wasn't the Bodhi tree yet, but he was sitting under a tree. And after practicing meditation, he looks up and sees the morning star. And in the realization of the morning star, he describes how it was the end of Dukkha, that there was no separation between him, the morning star, the morning. There was just what was occurring And the Buddha woke up. He was enlightened. Or you wouldn't even say he was enlightened. There was waking up. And then he sat there for about six weeks. And he didn't know what to do. Something was missing. He didn't just sit under the tree and keep staring at the star. It was impermanent. And then something was missing. And he wasn't sure what to do. And then he decided to get up and to go to the nearest town to see his old disciples and share with them what his experience was. And I think that's one of the most overlooked stories in Buddhist literature and something that can really help us in understanding what we mean by yoga. That when you have the realization of interconnectedness, that doesn't mean everything stops. 
the realization has to be put into practice, right? So you're sitting on your cushion as we're going to do a lot this week, and we're watching the breath, but then you have to get up, and you have to go to the bank, and you have to buy your vegetables, and you have to put on your socks. So your enlightenment process is always being worked through in the world. There isn't an end point. So samadhi always curls back into the yamas because you have to take action. But why? Action does not stop. Why do you have to take action? Because the world seems to always unfold into new form. You're always taking action. There are moments in samadhi where karma ends. But let's deal with this a little bit later. We'll come back to this question is, why can't samadhi just be the goal? Why do you have to take action? And I would say that when your heart opens and there's less self-centeredness and you start to look around in the world, you'll see that there is a lot of action that needs to be taken because there's a tremendous amount of suffering. You have just uh, given us an example from Buddhism, but I'm yeah. a bit confused. I actually thought that yoga was mostly founded in Buddhism. I'm glad for your confusion. Um, you could say Buddhism was founded in Hinduism also. That's true. In fact, the Hindus think the Buddha was one of their deities. Um, the heart of the Yoga Sutra is that there is no um, substantiality, what Patanjali calls Svarupa Shunya, that everything is empty of self-form which is also the heart of Buddhism. And this drives people crazy. Because the Hindus want Yoga Sutra to be a Hindu text, and the Vedanta people want it to be a Vedanta text, and the Buddhists want it to be a Buddhist text. And nobody can agree. And that's why... Because the Yoga Sutra is full of paradox. And we're going to explore some of that more together. But that's one of the reasons why it's lasted so long, and it's also why there's no Hindu, I mean, there's no yoga temples. There's no yoga priests. And that has a negative side, but it also has a positive side. Is that Patanjali, like the Buddha, was extremely wary of systems. I mean, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, he taught Dharma. And he said, you know, don't make a system out of this and don't make statues. And as soon as he dies, <laughs> he gets Buddhism. And soon we're going to have yogism. And then you'll be yogists. You're all asking such good questions. It's great. 